Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hello, friends. Before we get to Destroyer of the God with Larry Hurtado, let me tell you about the Missions Resource Network. MRN is about helping disciples make disciples worldwide through mobilizing, equipping, preparing, and caring. Now, these four words incorporate the multitude of resources that MRN offers to missionaries, church mission leaders, and ministry partners, such as missionary preparation, missionary care, equipping churches for mission through coaching, labs, vision, and strategy processes, and more, and also connecting mission works around the globe. Now, the recent focus has been on following God's lead to cast vision and develop collaborative strategies for the exciting opportunities to care for and share the gospel with refugees who have settled around the Mediterranean Rim. For more information, check them out at mrnet.org. That's mrnet.org. Now, before we get to Larry Hurtado and the Destroyers of the God, God's uh, I think I need to tell you it's about time for another mailbag podcast. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be accumulating questions and we're going to do another mailbag podcast. So if you've got questions, uh, comments, uh, send them to me, Luke at LukeNorsworthy.com. You can hit us up over on the Facebook page, which if you haven't liked, go ahead and like it on the old Facebook. Give us a little love. And if you're feeling frisky, record a voice memo, email it to me, and who knows, your voice might actually get on the old podcast. And now it's time for Larry Hurtado and Destroyers of the Gods, which kind of sounds like an action movie like, and now Mark Wahlberg, Destroyer of the Gods, takes on the universe. Like It sounds like an action movie. It's not an action movie. It's a very exciting book, but there's no like Mark Wahlberg character in the book. It's just a book uh, about stuff that's really good. Uh, so here, he, here we go. Back to the show today, we have joining us from across the pond in Edinburgh, Dr. Larry Hurtado. How are you, sir? Doing well. How are you? Good. Did I pronounce your last name right, by the way? That's the anglicized pronunciation. It's Spanish names, so the Spanish pronunciation would be a silent H, Hurtado. Well, my Spanish is not that strong these days, so I'll, I'll do my best to not butcher it. But uh, you're actually, from what I saw on Wikipedia, from the States. Is uh, Missouri, is that right? That's right. I was born and brought up in Kansas City, Missouri, and then um, after, not long after PhD work, moved to Canada to take academic appointments and was there for a little over 20 years, and then moved to Edinburgh in 1996. So I've been here about 20 years. Well, as a historian and an academic, you should be able to answer this question very easily. Is it Missouri or Missouri? Which is the cor- cor- correct pronunciation? Well, it all depends who you talk to, but I was brought up to say that if somebody said Missouri, it showed that they weren't from the state. That <laughs> okay. In the state pronunciation was to be Missouri. All right. Well, thank you for correcting me. Uh, I am I've not... talked to other people who said they've heard the opposite, so I'll let you choose. <laughs> Well, you're, you're clearly smarter than me, so I'll go with whatever you're saying. And we're talking today, you have a book that came out a while ago, Destroyer of the Gods. And l- let me tell you something. This is the first time in a long time that I actually bought a book on my own. I didn't get it like shipped to me from a publisher or a publicist. Uh, like I literally just went out and bought this book because I thought, hey, this looks like an interesting book. And I read it and I thought, this has been a, a little while past when the release date was. But I still want to talk about this book because it's actually very interesting to me. 
I'm glad you so, feel that way. Yeah, it, it came out um, in, I think, September in the States. Uh, it appeared in sort of uh, late October, something over here in Britain. So it's relatively still, uh, it's, a, it's still in its early stages. And I'm pleased to say just this last week I learned that it received um, uh, the uh, Prose Award o- uh, offered by the uh, Academic uh, Publishers Association uh, for Archaeology and Ancient History. Well, congratulations. It does not surprise me that this book has done well after reading it, and uh, congrats on that. That's that's outstanding. So we're going to talk about um, early Christianity in its relationship to its surrounding culture, and w- what I love about this book is that it was very, very helpful for me. And so one of the like the, the creeping suspicions of someone like myself, who my job is a pastor, and so just like you, I've spent my entire life basically around text and Christianity, and it's, it's all kind of like all my eggs are in one basket. And so it would be quite a letdown if it turned out that all Christianity was was a few well-intentioned and maybe a couple lies thrown in there, uh, well-intentioned people who overlooked some facts, and it just kind of snowballed as uh, myths and stories seem to do, and it over the years became this um, massive organization that really was all pr- uh, predicated upon something that was not true. And one of my, like the big hinges for that like fear is that, well, it just kind of, Christianity lived in the subculture, in the subsurface of society. And then Constantine decided, I'm going to win this battle because of the sign I saw in the clouds, and therefore Christianity blew up. And the way you tell the story is something new that I didn't realize, that Constantine's conversion uh, 300 some years after Jesus's death was not as much of a pivotal moment in Christianity as much as it was, um, in a lot of ways, the uh, accumulation of so much success that this movement had had up until that point. Why, yeah, why do I, people I, have that misunderstanding? I said somewhere in the book that, um, you know, I, I don't focus on Constantine's um, action. Uh, very often in the past, uh, authors have focused on that, on what is sometimes referred to as the, the triumph of Christianity, uh, as if Constantine's adaptation, uh, uh, adoption of Christianity marked its triumph. And there is, a, there is a sense in which it did give scope to official institutional forms of Christianity in a way that it didn't have before. First of all, they weren't being persecuted and hounded, so it yeah. sort of set them free in that sense. But now the, uh, the point I'm making is a pretty, very brief reference to Constantine, because I'm really focusing on the earlier period. But one thing to say about it is he was no fool. If he chose to adopt Christianity as his favorite religion, um, it was in large part because he saw it as a winning thing for him, as a smart move. And that's because it already had achieved considerable success in converting people, not only translocally in various places around the empire, but also uh, stratigraphically, so to speak, up and up and down the social stratigraphy all the way up into senatorial classes by some time in the 3rd century. And we know that because some of them were being martyred. Yeah. So the numbers that you put out there, which I think you uh, you make the statement that it's kind of widely accepted, but by 300 AD, there is between 5 to 6 million Christians already. And so this that's a substantial group of people. Yeah, it's um, it's it depends, you know, that's a rough and ready estimate um, and you sort of have to take it with a grain of salt, but it's one that I use simply because a lot of other scholars have played with it as well. 
keeping in mind there are 50 to 60 million people in the Roman Empire, we estimate at that point. So it's, um, you know, maybe approaching 8 to 10 percent of the total population. Yeah. So the question becomes, how did this new religious movement uh, survive for that long, whereas so many other um, philosophies or, or ways of living weren't able really to outlive the Roman era that they first appeared in? And so... You know, the question is, religion in the first century, in a lot of ways, was not even the way that we understand what religion is today. It's a Christianity was a complete outlier from what other quote unquote religions would have been, and that word itself was not even used right in the first century. Well, you have you have a Roman word from which we get our word religion, a Latin word religio, but it doesn't mean what we mean by the term. Religio simply means a kind of uh, observance of duties, which can be to your parents or to any other uh, obligation that you have. To be, you know, to exercise religio is to be diligent and conscientious in fulfillment of whatever whatever duties there are. Um, so, yeah, the, the the two points I'm trying to make in the book are really uh, one that in its original historical setting, Christianity was, as you put it, an outrider, bizarre, uh, even seen as antithetical to. Uh, what was understood to be religion at the time and the social order. And the other point I'm making is that in these ways in which early Christianity was bizarre, they have become for us unexamined uh, assumptions. Uh, We assume, the things that we assume about religion have been shaped largely by Christianity. Uh, But in the original setting, when those ideas first appeared, they were really regarded as bizarre. What would you say was the most bizarre element of Christianity in the first century? Well, I, hard to say. I think the, the one that the uh, that ancient uh, pagan critics comment on the most, and that seems to have been the most threatening to them and the most um, uh, objectionable, was their refusal to honor the gods. They were seen to be irreligious. You have to keep in mind that in the Roman world, with the exception of Jews, and we'll come back to that in a moment, but with the exception of the Jews, um, everybody else in the Roman world accepted all the gods. You know, it was sort of an all-or-nothing thing. You couldn't pick and choose among the gods as to which ones you accepted and which ones you didn't. In principle, all gods were valid, and all gods deserved worship, and you were being a bonehead if you exercised any sort of discrimination among the gods. The early Christians rejected the whole bunch, said, no, all the gods are unworthy of worship, and instead preferred only the one deity. So that, that, was, um, that was a move that was considered to be highly offensive, uh, threatening to not only what people understood to be piety and religion at the time, but even threatening to the social and political order, because the gods were not only believed to be and to be worthy of worship, uh, and, and it was impious to doubt them or to refuse to worship them, but also... All of the social structures from family right on up to empire rested upon the gods. That was, the gods were the foundation of everything. So if you called into question the validity of the gods, you called into question in principle the validity of all of those social political structures. Mm-hmm. So this was probably the single most threatening and objectionable thing was there what, what, the, what the Romans sometimes referred to as atheism. So early Christians were accused of atheism because they didn't honor the gods. Which is kind of an ironic thing for Christian, Christians to be called, to be atheists. It's not what you expect. But they're, no, uh, 
drawing, drawing upon that, I sometimes jokingly say at dinner parties just to get people going, <laughs> you know, in order to be a good Christian, you have to learn how to be, first to learn how to, how to be a really good atheist. I, and they sort of I, go, what? And then it allows me to, uh, to explain the situation. But early Christians were accused of impiety, of what we would call irreligion, of atheism, as I say. Uh, and uh, now we, we, I mentioned that the Jews similarly rejected the gods, but here's another feature about Roman religion. It, it characteristically, Roman era religion was understood to be an expression of your ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Uh, every nation had its own gods, and the various the, the Roman the Roman emperors have accepted the various nations that they ruled over, gave them quite a lot of latitude, including the right to maintain their own deities and so on. And uh, and the, and so the, the Jews had their deity. They refused to honor the deities of other nations, and that was considered to be odious and objectionable as well. But the Romans were basically able to say. Well, it's an ethnic thing. You know, this is, what, this is the way Jews are. Every nation has its own peculiarities, and the Jews only more so. So we really find it odious and objectionable that they don't accept other people's gods, but it's their ethnic custom. So they were able to give the Jews quite a lot of latitude because of that. The difference was that early Christianity was not an ethnic religion, but what we would call a trans-ethnic religion, aggressively making converts uh, of various nationalities, of various ethnicities, and not requiring them to forsake their ethnicity, but allowing them to stay what they were, with Assyrian, Greek, Egyptian, Roman, whatever. Um, and, uh, and, and so this was the thing that made early Christianity a particular threat, is that it was, uh, you know, the same kind of uh, uh, rejection of the gods that characterized Judaism, only instead of being confined to a particular nation, it was spreading in their minds like a cancerous growth through the various peoples of the of the empire. Yeah, and so when a a Gentile convert to Christianity would be told by Paul that you don't have to convert to Judaism, my initial thought is, well, that's a good thing because you don't have to go through all the hoops that a Jewish person would have to go through, and instead you can just be a Christian. As I'm reading your book, I'm thinking, well, actually that would be more problematic because if they came became ethnically a Jewish person, the Roman culture would allow them to disrespect and to quote-unquote be an atheist of other gods, but if they're not doing that, it actually makes them more objectable to the Roman culture. D- did I understand that correctly? I think that's true, and this may help us to understand why. You know, a question I always had when I was younger uh, as a student was... Um, why did Paul have to persuade, try to argue with these pagan, former pagans in, in uh, the letter to the Galatians, for example, and elsewhere? Why did he have to argue so strenuously that they should not undergo circumcision uh, and not uh, you know, become, take up the Torah and become Jews? Because you think, well, why would, why would you have to try to dissuade a grown man from getting circumcised you know, if he wasn't? Yep. Uh, and and the, the answer seems to be, that, as you say, it was attractive to be associated and fully legitimated in the Jewish community because it offered you a certain ethnic protection that early Christianity could not offer you. Yeah, and so their conversion to a non-Jewish religion didn't afford them the benefits of being a Jewish person. And so their critiques... And it didn't afford them tradition at all because it was... It was, you know, to any careful observer, it was not Judaism because they didn't really, um, you know, they didn't really undergo a full proselyte conversion, which for males would have included circumcision 
and the uh, observance of, of the commandments of the Torah. There, there were, you know, obviously they didn't, they weren't doing that, so it wasn't an authentic Judaism, uh, and it was therefore seen as a kind of upstart new religious movement. And in the Roman world, something new and upstart was always treated with suspicion. Yeah, yeah. And so there was a, a sense of distinctiveness from the culture that, as I'm reading your work, it sounds like their distinctiveness from, from culture was actually one of the things that gave them staying power because they were a separate group. Whereas, you know, as a pastor today, I feel like there is a temptation to look very similar to the culture around uh, and, and that's not just a, a right or left political thing, but there's a sense that you blend in and you lose your distinctiveness. So, of course, uh, your staying power is diminished because you are not this unique group of people. Well, there's there's uh, an interesting uh, balance that has to be maintained. One of one of the people I cite early on in the book is Rodney Stark, who is a very mm-hmm. widely regarded sociologist of religion. And one of the things that he developed uh, through a, a massive empirical analysis of converts and of new religious movements, tracking them over several decades and noticing those that survived and those that failed. And one of the principles that he came up with was that in order for a religious movement to survive and to grow, it has to be both uh, able to commend itself to the culture around it and not be totally bizarre because, uh, you know, if you say, well, we eat our firstborn as our mean ritual or whatever, or take, take the case of the Shakers, uh, a movement that arose in the 19th century and insisted that you had to remain, all members of the Shaker uh, community had to remain fully celibate. That was never going to work. You know, if you forbid marriage and don't allow people to marry to have children, then that, that religious movement, I think the last report sometime in the 70s or 80s, there were six people left in the Shaker community, something like that. So you, you can't be... You can't, be, you can't set your demands so high that nobody can really take them seriously. On the other hand, if you set the demands too low, if you assimilate too much to the culture, then also you don't survive. So his argument was that people, that religious movements that make, their, make the bar between the in-group and the out-group too high or that make it too low don't survive. And the ones that survive and grow are those that strike a balance between commending themselves in some kind of way positively so that the, you know, the general public could say, well, I, it's not totally out of the question that a person could be a member of that group, I guess. Mm-hmm. And yet there has to be a clear in-group, out-group difference because otherwise, why would you bother joining if it's no different from the larger society? Yeah. So yes, I think early, what I suggest is that early Christianity, if that principle is true, that a, that a successful religion must maintain that kind of balance. Well, early Christianity was manifestly a successful religion. So what I say is, let's look at those features uh, of early Christianity that, um, that maintained that kind of in-group, out-group distinction, certain things that distinguished it in its culture. Now, if you look at a writing like the Epistle of Diognetus that I, I deal with at some point in the book, you will see that early Christ or, or, or even in New Testament, First Peter, which at various points urges Christians to avoid giving offense, if at all possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, See to it that nobody convicts you of being a lawbreaker. See to it that you cooperate, that you're as good a neighbor as you can possibly be, that you go out of your way to help people, and so on and so on and so on, so that you try to commend yourself and avoid giving offense, if at all possible, because there will be things on which you cannot avoid giving offense. So, you know, he says if you're called into court because you're a Christian, well, 
take it like a man and, and, you know, live up to it, but try to avoid any other offense. And the Epistle of Diognetus has this long section where he says, you know, why are you persecuting us? Why are you treating us as if we're oddballs? We, are, we eat the same food that you do. We wear the same clothes that you do. Um, you know, we, we speak the same language that you do. We're like you in many respects, and then lays out the differences. But the difference is that we regard your gods as false and unworthy beings, and then he proceeds to lay out Christian beliefs as the distinguishing mark. Mm-hmm. Well, some of the offensive things that, that you list in the book is obviously the economics of stepping away from idol worship. Uh, that was obviously a big moneymaker for the cities. The, mm-hmm. uh, one of the critiques I read was the conversion of a lower status, uh, lower status of person, lower, lower class, uh, which obviously could be looked down on for, from upper class people. Um, but also one of the critiques was part of the unbelievability of certain doctrines. There's um, uh, Celsius, I believe that's his name, uh, yeah. who portrayed Christianity as, in your language, simpletons, and he characterized their teachers as quack physicians and charlatans passing off simplistic teachings. And so there was a sense that like the, what Christians thought, uh, obviously resurrection, I would assume, would be the center part of that, as just being unbelievable. And so that's part of the offense, and you don't want it to just be your lifestyle. Do you, was it mainly the idea of resurrection and some of the other teachings around Jesus that were so offensive or so unbelievable to them? Well, to, to, to the idea of resurrection was to, I think, virtually all sophisticated people, at least in the ancient world, not only incredible, but also repellent. That is, why would you want to be embodied? Because the aim of most of the um, sort of more sophisticated philosophical traditions of the day was to escape the encumberments of bodily existence and to be a free spirit. And uh, so, so why, why would you hold out the possibility of re-embodiment, whatever the nature of it? Uh, that was considered to be abhorrent or repellent, not just incredible. Hmm. Um, the, one of the criticisms that Kelsus makes also is, uh, he says, you know, you, you honor this, um, this man, Jesus, um, and he says, well, okay, you know, we have... We have if you want to honor a man besides your God, that's okay, because we have a category of deified heroes and so on. And he says, but, but he's utterly unworthy of being uh, worshipped the way you do. There are far more heroic individuals, the emperor, or he names other certain pagan demigods who were great warriors or great combatants. And he says, but your guy, I mean, he's, he's not a hero at all. He gets himself crucified. He was, um, he was uh, a craftsman. He was not a king or anything. So, so you know, th- th- this just makes no sense at all. So it was, it was seen to be the sort of thing that you wouldn't want to associate yourself with. Yeah. Uh, it, it sounds like an American politician saying that his heroes aren't prisoners of war like John McCain who get captured. Same kind of uh, yeah. criticism. You can leave that one there. Don't touch that one. But uh, one, of the, one of the things that you also mentioned that would have been uh, obscure in the first century was the characteristic of the deity, that, that God is love uh, a God of love with love towards humanity, uh, a relational intensity ascribed to Judeo-Christian God would have not made sense in the first century at all. Why is that? Well, uh, it, it, it just was uh, not part of the discourse world of the pagan, of the, of the Roman world, as far as I can tell. And I've done a good deal of looking around for it and consulting with other scholars who specialize in Roman-era pagan religion, um, and I, I can't, I have to say, I haven't been able to find those. 
any reference in uh, Roman-era discourse about the gods which refers to the gods or any god as loving humanity or loving people. You find references sometimes. The gods, a particular deity, may be praised as being uh, generous or bountiful in their gifts or merciful or kindly disposed or whatever. You know, nice, nice things are said about the gods, but loving humans, in the strong sense of the word, really isn't an aspect of, um, of pagan discourse. Yet, as anybody will know looking through the New Testament, it's hard to find a page of the New Testament practically mm-hmm. which doesn't talk about God's love uh, and commands believers to answer in love. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it, yeah, I think it is, uh, it is certainly, on the facts of it, a distinguishing feature of early Christian discourse. And I suggest that it may have been, for some people, winsome, attractive for other people, such as Celsus, it was self-evidently ridiculous. I mean, he does say, these poor wretches imagine, their, their teacher has told them that if they uh, put their faith in him and follow him, they will have immortality and so on. I mean, he, he pillories these people who are insignificant wretches of the earth, as far as he's concerned, who imagine that the deity actually um, loves them. To say maybe even giving them a time of day that 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 he supposedly loves them. So this was this was seen to be r- ridiculous. Um, and here's the compounding thing: it isn't just to say, "Yeah, I have a deity who loves me." But the early Christian message was there is only one true and ultimate deity who is in charge of everything. He made the whole world. He made everything. He rules over everything. And all the other deities are imposters and and uh, insidious beings in comparison. There's this one almighty God who can do anything he wants. He's like greater than any emperor. And you'd say, ooh, okay, that's pretty fearsome and powerful. And then to combine that with, and this almighty God is um, uh, directed by the motive of love for the world and for those who put their faith in him. That's a pretty heady combination. You know, you, you would either say, that's so absolutely incredible, I can't even get my mind around it, or, if you entertain the idea, you might say, wow, that's, um, hmm, if that were true, that would be kind of wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and the way that they describe the other gods, uh, they don't exist. The, the language that uh, you mentioned was used for idol was a Greek term that designated or connoted something that is merely a phantom. So clearly a level of disrespect for the other gods uh, that were very prevalent in that culture. And so there is a like a philosophical difference, but there's also a practical difference in that there is uh, a connection of ethical behavior that's not making Christianity just a philosophy, but it's actually a way of life. In, in the first century, religions, uh, as I understood it from you, would not have cared about a way of life. Is Christianity... Well, in the Roman world, no. And, and actually, you know, down through time, uh, across cultures for, you know, tens of thousands of years even, perhaps, um, what we mean by religion, that is, you know, a, a, a set of actions that you, by which you relate yourself in some way to gods, that is never, in the Roman world and in most cultures, never seen as really the place that you go to to learn how to live your life, how to live a good life. I mean, religion is how you relate to gods and how you get favors from the gods. So you would go to the gods in the Roman world to offer a sacrifice or to make a prayer when you needed something. You know, if your wife 
Um, you wanted your wife to conceive, you would go to the appropriate deity and you would say, if you make my wife to conceive, I promise that I will give you this in return. Or you would show up at particular occasions when the annual birthday of the guardian god of the city was celebrated, you would show up as part of your civic duty to show your solidarity with fellow citizens in the city and to petition the deity for continuing protection from uh, plague or earthquake or warfare, whatever. So it was a kind of quid pro quo relationship with the deities. You did your part by offering sacrifices and by providing um, that kind of worship, and the gods in return would be favorably disposed towards you and grant your wishes or guard the city or protect your household. If you wanted to contemplate how should I live my life in the Roman world, you typically turn to philosophy, not to religion. Early Christianity, it's interesting to note, is often seen by some other pagan critics, such as the physician Galen, uh, who was critical of early Christianity, but not not in the same harsh way that Kelsus was. But he refers to early Christianity as a kind of philosophy, because from his standpoint, it resembled more a philosophy than it did a religion. Note, Christians in this early period did not have shrines, they did not have altars, they did not offer sacrifices, they did not have an image of their gods, they did not have a priesthood, All of these things are essential features of religion, as far as the Romans know it, and the Christians had none of them. On the other hand, what did they do? They had books, (laughs) and they had writings, and when they got together, they read books, and they tried to shape uh, one another's behavior, and they taught about how to behave, and enforced, uh, took oaths of of obedience and so on to, uh, to, to observe a certain way of life. In the Roman world, that looks much more like philosophy than like religion. Mm hmm Part of the practices that uh, you emphasize in your book that uh, separated and made Christians distinct uh, from their culture, uh, one of the practices was exposure, uh, which is basically the idea of, if I'm understanding this correctly, uh, if if you didn't want a child for whatever reason, you basically just left it out, and it could either be um, taken and turned into a slave, or it would have been uh, eaten by an animal or something like that. And it's just a very disgusting practice but as you describe it, you said in the first century, it wasn't really looked down upon by the, the majority of people with the same level of disdain that any modern reader would, would hear it as. No, and there was no law against it. Uh, and so that's an interesting. There was law against murder uh, and, and so on, but there was no law against uh, child exposure, uh, which was basically just infant abandonment, as you say. You, you, you know, if, if uh, you or you know, your, your wife or uh, concubine or whoever had a child and either the woman or the or the husband didn't want the child for example you may say you know we wanted a boy and this is a girl we don't want this you could either uh, kill it by drown drowning the child or whatever or uh, as often if not more so take it to a, a place that was basically like a city dump and just leave the infant there uh, and it was known uh, I think quite widely that um, people who that, that there were people who would go around and collect infants and bring them up. Those who did so generally uh, collected infants for the purpose of bringing them up to serve in brothels. Uh, they were effectively slaves, and they were turned into male or female prostitutes. And that was well, quite widely done. I, I cite a letter, a very famous letter, that has often been cited, written. Uh, in about the time of Jesus, by uh, a guy whose name is Hilarion, to his wife back in Egypt. And 
it's um, in many ways it's a very tender letter. He says, you know, don't worry that I will ever forget you. I'm away from you, but I remember you all the time. I'm sending money to care for you and the little boy. Uh, greet my father for me. Tell him how much I miss him. And then says, oh, and by now you will have had the child. If it is a boy, name it Marcus. If it is a girl, expose it. And then he goes on to say, I love you always, and I hope to be so soon. So it's interesting. What I point out is this guy's not a monster. He's not a pervert, uh, some kind of deranged person. He's a person who is a loving husband, a loving son and father. And yet it's this kind of person who, um, without a hiccup, can say, you know, um, if it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, dispose of it. That indicates how widely accepted it was. Christians Christians opposed that, spoke out against it, as did uh, Jews. And um, and Christians um, uh, didn't not only did not practice it, but uh, came to be known as people who would themselves take unwanted infants and bring them up in their homes uh, as adoptive children. What was the the rationale or argument as to why Christianity and Judaism was against this practice? Well, it appears that uh, that this was seen as. Um, going against the will of God. You know, the, 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 uh, this, was, this was murder as far as they were concerned. They weren't alone in that. There were philosophers. I cite, for example, uh, the Roman pagan philosopher Masonius Rufus, who held a very similar view and who condemns the practice of child exposure uh, and says, you know, Zeus will be angry with you because you are going against Zeus as the giver of life, and if you take a life of this infant, you are going against his will. So, there was this notion that you were, you were going against the law of life, you might say. But Musonius and the other few pagan voices who spoke out against this never sought really to engage in any sort of social project involved in altering people's behavior. As far as we know, Musonius Rufus's um, influence went no wider, really, than the small circle of dedicated disciples that he gathered about him in his little philosophical school, one of the crucial differences is uh, on, on this matter of child exposure and certain other things is not simply that Christians said something that other people didn't say. Very often, there were pagans who said something very similar. The difference was that early Christians engaged in a much more aggressive social project to um, change people's behavior. And, uh, and in effect, you know, they, they, they took their message out to the streets in a way in which the philosophical uh, voices of the day did not. So Christianity was m- making a concerted effort to eradicate or at least work against the practice of exposure. Uh, you also mentioned sexuality is one of the practices that Christianity uh, did a major reform against the cultural norms of a very laissez-faire attitude towards male cavalier sexual practices. Uh, one of the practices that Christianity doesn't do much uh, work in eradicating is the practice of slavery. W- why do you think slavery wasn't uh, an issue that they dealt with as much as they dealt with exposure or sexuality? Well, two things. Let me back up and say, early Christians were not in a position to eradicate anything. Um, they were in a position to demand that membership in the community involve these behavioral things. Yeah. So yeah. they didn't try to change. They weren't capable of, you know, of passing any law or overturning social conventions at large but they created their own subculture, so to speak, within the ecclesia, and within that subculture, 
uh, practices such as child exposure or male multiple part male uh, sexual promiscuity were forbidden and um, and controlled and, and, and a different set of behavior put in. Um, slavery, we do, it's it's clear that that Christians didn't um, uh, practice some sort of wholesale uh, abolition of slavery among themselves. Um, we do know that Christians by the second century were purchasing the freedom of slaves, however, using church funds to purchase the freedom of slaves. And so it's a, it's a kind of mixed bag, but, but yes, there certainly were Christians continued to own slaves on through into the, into the time of Constantine. And I suppose the only thing we say is, well, you can't expect um, a group of people uh, to be perfect. <laughs> uh, they weren't perfect, and it's not my point to say that they were. Uh, they were distinctive in their own setting, but um, uh, they weren't perfect. And the other thing to say is nobody really in the ancient world, it didn't occur to anybody in the ancient world to abolish the practice of slavery. Um, and so the Christians were not exceptional in that. Okay, so this book's been out for a few months. I found it to be just a fascinating read, very, very helpful for me personally, and I'm I'm sure... Uh, for, for any of my listeners, if you, you check out this book, you'll have the same experience. Now, one of the interesting things about talking about a book that's been out for a few months is that there's been time for people uh, to want to critique or push back on the book. Have you received any uh, consistent feedback or people who are making the same kind of pushback against your book? I, I don't have any I, I know of. I'm just wondering if, you, if you've heard any. Well, I've had some, uh, thus far, some uh, online reviews, you know, through, through online sites, blog sites or whatever, and uh, most of them have been favorable. Uh, one or two have been uh, critical. Uh, one guy didn't like the book because, he, you know, he liked other things about it, but the one thing he really uh, got um, um, disappointed about was that he claimed, I, I should have made much more of emperor worship. Um, hmm. And because I, I didn't make more, more of that, he was very upset. And he didn't like me referring to early Christianity as a religious movement. Uh, he wanted to emphasize, no, that it had strong political implications. Well, we'll just have to disagree there. Um, I mean, it seems to me that, that as we use the word religious, early Christianity was a religious movement. It was primarily talking about and orienting itself toward a deity, and I would call that being religious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it didn't function as a political party. It didn't, uh, it didn't try to, to overthrow the political structures. Um, indeed, whenever Christians pretty well Whenever they talk about the structures, they promise loyalty to the emperor. They, second-century apologists, for example, characteristically say, we do not oppose the emperor, we will pray for the emperor, we will pray for his health and safety, uh, but we will not worship him. Uh, and so they made a separation between uh, political loyalty and some of the religious claims. So we just have to disagree there. But he, he, he wanted to try to, yeah. to um, express some disappointment because I didn't agree with him on that point. Um, but I think that, by and large, uh, reviews have been appreciative, so I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, well, uh, add this to uh, the long list of positive reviews of the book. Uh, I, what, I, what I really liked was there was an emphasis on the uh, philosophical differences, the, uh, the beliefs, the, the conceptual ideas that separated Christianity from its uh, you know, Roman culture, but also its practical like behavioral differences from its surrounding culture. And I feel like whenever you lose both sides of that coin, we undersell what what Christianity is supposed to be today. Do you do you find that there is a temptation to lean to one side over the other? Like, 
not just in the first century, but now as we look back on it, as we're trying to process today, to, to take one side of that coin instead of the other? Yes, I suppose so. It's, it's possible for people to get so hung up over doctrinal matters, um, and uh, in some cases, you know, um, uh, make doctrinal disagreement or agreement so crucial that it actually interferes with their ability to exhibit uh, the behavioral demands of Christianity, quite frankly. You know, mm-hmm. uh, people who uh, think that doctrinal disagreement virtually gives them the right to hate somebody that they disagree with, or at least to treat them with utter disdain and condemnation. Um, and so, I, I, probably in, in Western Christianity, that has been the besetting a besetting problem, is that Western Christianity in particular seems to have had this idea for a long time that doctrinal uniformity must be obtained before there can be true Christian fellowship. And um, I'm struck by a passage in the Epistle to the Ephesians in the New Testament, which says we are to strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, forbearing and forgiving each other in love, and then later on in the verse, uh, in the passage, until we attain the unity of the faith. So mm-hmm. unity of the faith is held out as some kind of eschatological possibility in the future, not a present, re- uh, not a present reality. The present reality or the present demand is not uniformity of belief, but maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, forbearing and forgiving one another. And as I've said often, you don't ever have to forbear or forgive anybody who's intelligent enough to agree with you. It's only those boneheads who insist on seeing something some other way that require of you forbearance and forgiveness. So the situation that is being envisaged there, the present responsibility of Christians, is precisely a responsibility to behave charitably in a situation of disagreement. Would the first century church have had that sort of generous uh, communal practice of welcoming those who have different uh, ideas say, for example, about the resurrection. It seems like that—that's the linchpin. Paul talks about it uh, a great deal. First Corinthians fifteen. It's the center of the Gospels. Would there have been a sense of we don't all have to have the same conclusion on this practice, the resurrection, but we can still have unity? Or would there have been a very distinct line drawn over that issue? Well, there were certain things, obviously, that 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 uh, Paul and other early Christians thereafter wouldn't compromise on. I mean, Paul you know, is, is steadfast in his insistence, for example, that his uh, former pagan converts, his Gentile converts, must not uh, proselytize, must not undergo proselyte conversion to Judaism, uh, because that would call into question the sufficiency of Christ. It would be like saying Christ is a nice first step, but in order to really secure your salvation, you need to go further than Christ into proselyte conversion. That's the way he said that that would be the, the logic you'd be following, and that would be unacceptable. So he's very stern about that, and in, indeed condemns those who try to to um, uh, make his converts make that sort of move. And he pretty pretty br- brutal on them, calling them dogs and false teachers and false brothers and so on. Um, so there were certain things over which you know the, the 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 stakes were so high that there couldn't be a compromise over that. But in many other areas, um, you know. Um, it's quite clear in early Christian texts that in many other areas, Christians were willing to forbear one another. I'm thinking of a passage in in Justin Martyr, second century Christian uh, teacher, and in, in a dialogue that he has with a couple of Jewish interlocutors, one of them says to him, 
are there Jews who believe this stuff, you know, this, this nonsense? And Justin says, yes, there are. There are Jewish uh, believers who believe in Jesus, who baptize in his name. They observe the Torah, and they circumcise their sons, but they do not require us to do so, and I regard them as brothers. And then he says, but then there are other Jewish believers. They circumcise their sons and observe Torah, and they require us to do so as well, and with them we cannot have fellowship. It's interesting that the term heresy, from which, which has become so famous, originates as a term which means um, a party, uh, not in the celebrative sense, but in the sense of like a political party. Mm-hmm. So a hierasis is a party, a sect. And the people who are condemned as heretics in the early church tend to be those people who say, it either has to be me and my view down the line 100% or nothing. Uh, it's an all or nothing uh, kind of divisiveness that was introduced by them. And, um, and so the, the so-called great church, the great emerging church, actually tends to be able to incorporate a kind of critical diversity. The New Testament is a brilliant example of that. I mean, you have four markedly different accounts of Jesus with, with evidently different purposes and emphases and orientations in the four Gospels. You have the epistles of Paul. Then you have also the epistle of James, a uh, very, very different kind of emphasis. You have the book of Revelation, which is kind of out there on its own, very different still. The letters of John, which have its own kind of spirituality. So uh, over against someone like um, Marcion, for example, the second century Christian teacher who insisted that there could only be one true apostle, and for him that was Paul, and that there could only be one true gospel. Uh, Over against that, the emerging New Testament of the so-called Great Church is multiple gospels, multiple apostles, with the differences left intact, and the New Testament itself, its architecture, you might say, is an architecture of a kind of critical diversity. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. I think it's a, uh, that's a good word, especially for, uh, for us who start far too often uh, get stuck in our camps and we can't seem to listen to those who have different takes on ta- text and, and passages than we do. Uh, well, I overall, the, I think the New Testament and, and uh, as a whole, one of the basic principles I would say is that how you handle your differences with other Christians is as important as maintaining your own point of view in those differences. Hmm. That's good. That's good. Well, there is no disagreement for me that this is a great book, uh, Destroyer of the Gods. Uh, thank you for writing this. I, uh, I do hope everyone gets a copy of this and checks this one out. But uh, thanks again for your time, sir. I, I appreciate it. My, my pleasure. Bye-bye. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.